0: But I I want to take a moment and honor moms. I want to honor those moms who aren't yet moms, but are looking forward to the day when that happens. I want to honor those moms whose children haven't grown up as they had hoped, at least not yet. I want to honor moms whose children exasperate them, which is every mom, everywhere, All the time. (laughs) And I do also want to honor moms who minister to children who are not their own. And give them a sense of the love of a mom. And I want to honor moms who, with pain and struggle, love their children anyway. And still take joy in being a mom. My mom um, had a lot of difficulty in her life. Some of it was uh, inflicted upon her. Some of it was self-inflicted. But what I know about my mom and what I always was able to rely on is that she loved me. And she acted and worked to express that love to me uh, my entire life. And I want to appreciate that. And I want to appreciate moms here today. And uh, if I uh, could ask moms to stand. Yes, come on, stand up. Okay, and uh, I'd like you to remain standing for a couple of minutes here, while I read a uh, passage that Jesse read this morning. Thanks, Jesse. for stealing my thunder. <laughs> but I think it's worth I think it's worth uh, reading again. It's from Proverbs 31, which, uh, if you're familiar with the passage, uh, asks the question Who uh, an excellent wife who can find? But part of what an excellent wife is is an excellent mom, and there's some. There's some part of the passage here that speaks to that. So that's what I'd like to read. So I'm going to read it, and then I'll say a prayer. So mom, just remain standing for that. She is clothed with strength and honor, and she can laugh at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many daughters have done valiantly, but you surpass surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her credit for what she has accomplished and let her works praise her in the city gates. Father God, thank you for making moms. Thank you for the love that you express to us through our moms, and thank you, Lord, that as mothers, they can express your love to their kids. Thank you, Lord, for that, and I pray, Father, that all the moms here today are called blessed and are honored and are recognized for what it is they do and who it is they are, being moms. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you. Well, we commemorate Moms Today, but there's another uh, commemoration day this week that maybe you missed. Uh, It was on Wednesday, and that's Star Wars Day. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, May the 4th be with you, you know, that's how it goes. And and, uh, as we're we're celebrating Mother's Day, uh, Nancy and I celebrated Star Wars Day. Uh, And Nancy helped celebrate that by uh, making uh, Chewbacca soup. I think we have a picture of Chewbacca. There he is. Uh, He's a good guy in Star Wars, a little hairy. Um, But Nancy made Chewbacca soup, and you might think that Chewbacca soup um, is hairy, (laughs) has hair in it. But surprisingly, it, it doesn't, and it's very good, although my soup was a little chewy. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Let's get into this. It's hurry, yeah. I want to introduce you to a fellow by the name of Joshua Harris. Harris, as an 18-year-old, wrote a book in 1977 called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. The premise of the book was that unless you're ready to be married, that you shouldn't date. It was a little controversial at the time, but it did become a bestseller, selling over a million copies. And it made Harris famous in Christian circles. The book began what became known as purity culture. Later, Harris became lead pastor of a church in Maryland called Covenant Life Church, which was a mega church, And in 2004, Harris became the lead pastor of that church at the very young age of 30, until he left the church in 2015. In 2018, Harris disavowed his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and stopped its publication. The following year he separated from and then divorced his wife. And shortly after that, he announced, quote, I have undergone a massive shift in my regard in regard to my faith in Jesus, and he gave up on his Christian faith. He now makes a living as a quote message clarity coach for thought leaders whatever that is. So Harris went through uh, a process called deconstruction. Deconstruction understood in the context of faith is a process whereby you question everything about your faith, about your system of belief uh, that you previously proclaimed because you are told that system is a construct. basically it was it's been made up and you have to examine it and see what you want to hang it on to and what you want to dispose of. but almost inevitably, this deconstruction process leads to a, leads a person, including Harris, to deny the faith, to deny everything about the faith that he or she claims they once held. In the denial of his faith, Harris denied Christ. And to Harris, Christ is not God. Harris encourages others to deconstruct their faith, as he did. John, the apostle, would call Harris an antichrist. Small a. So let's read our passage, 1 John two eighteen through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. abide in him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would open up your word to us this morning, that what you have to say is clear, and that what you have to say makes an impact on our lives, and makes that impact, and the result of that impact, Father, would be that we are a little bit more like your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So John writes with some purposes in this section of the of the letter. First John two twenty one he says, "I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth." And in verse twenty six he says, "I write these things things to you about those who are trying to deceive you." John says that he writes or has written to his leaders his readers at least thirteen times in First John. He writes that our joy may be made complete. He writes that his readers may not sin. He writes about a new commandment. And as Caleb pointed out last week, John writes to children, fathers, and young men out of loving care because of what God has done in them. And in 1 John 5, John writes that his readers may know that they have eternal life. When John says that he's writing to his readers, he's revealing his purposes, he reveals what he wants them to know about themselves and about what God has accomplished in their lives. John writes this way because he wants to reassure and to encourage his readers. And that encouragement is important because some of them were questioning their position in Christ. They may have even been questioning their faith. And this questioning came because some of their number had left the fellowship. And in leaving, were told by those who left, That they did not know everything, and what they had been taught was wrong and incomplete, especially about who Christ is. These people said that they had a special knowledge. So John reveals two purposes for writing in this passage. First, in verse 21, John writes to reassure his readers that they do know the truth. Specifically, they know the truth about Christ. John doesn't have to tell them anything new or give them something different or previously unknown, they know the truth, and the lies they have been told by those who have left are just that, they are lies. Secondly, John writes in verse 26 about those who are trying to deceive John's readers. What those who have left the fellowship over is not a simple matter of a difference of opinion or a difference in one's take on a doctrine. Those who have left are actively trying to deceive John's readers. The deceivers are trying to convince John's readers that what they know about Christ is wrong. Their claim about possessing a special knowledge sounds good, sounds inviting, it sounds intellectual, and it's even tempting. But John calls these people antichrists. So let's look at what John says about Antichrist. The first thing he says about them is that they're not of us. 1 John 2, 18 and 19 Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So John associates the Antichrist with the last hour. Of course, that means that Christ could return any time. Certainly, John, the apostles, and many early believers believed that Christ could return any time, even any moment. But the idea of Christ's return was not just that it might be any moment, but that his return was imminent. The idea of imminence is that the believers must be ready when Christ returns, whether it's the next moment, or the next day, or the next year, or even the next millennia. The idea is expressed in Paul's instructions on celebrating communion in 1 Corinthians. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's also expressed in the parable of the ten virgins. Virgins, not virgins. Virgins. And you'll remember the parable. Five of the virgins were uh, commended for having enough oil as they waited for the bridegroom to arrive because they didn't know when he would come. But five, of the other five virgins... Were, ready, were not ready when the bridegroom came, and they were shut out from the wedding. John reminds the believers that they have heard that antichrist is coming. So, what is the antichrist? Paul calls the antichrist in Second Thessalonians three and four, two, three and four. He says, "Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. John in Revelation calls the Antichrist the beast. In chapter 13, verse 6, he says, It, meaning the beast, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. However, John adds that many Antichrists have come. And John elsewhere calls this is the spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And Jesus spoke of Antichrist. Matthew twenty four twenty four. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So that's their character. Their character, the, the character of the Antichrist is that they oppose Christ. And they are deceivers. And then Jung identifies these Antichrists. He says they were in the fellowship of believers. They looked like believers. They did the, the things believers do and they talked like believers talked. But they were not believers. They never were believers. They left the fellowship and in their leaving they demonstrated that they never belonged. John's readers were troubled at the departure of these people, but John drives home the point that they were never part of the fellowship. They were never believers despite what they said or did, and they are from the world. First John 4, 5 says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So John is not talking about people who leave a fellowship because they think Caleb should show more Lord of the Rings clips during his sermons. Or that they think that community should be served twice a month or on every other Wednesday or alternating Thursdays. And it's not because there are people who, like some, who've moved across the country from California to come to Grace Life. <clears throat> the ones John's talking about were never of us. So when Nancy and I left our church in California to move out here, we found that uh, we missed a lot of things. And we still do miss a lot of things. I have some pictures here. Uh, picture number one. We, uh, we missed Disneyland. We were about 15 minutes from Disneyland. Actually, about 10 minutes, depending on how you drive. We got it there, picture number one. It'll show up, I'm sure. Hey, there it is. Good. Good. That's actually Disney California Adventure, which is right next to Disneyland. But the mouse is there. We thought that was cool. And then we have another picture, picture number two, also about Disneyland. Ah, there it is. (laughs) Uh, What you see Nancy uh, chowing down on there is called the kitchen sink. It's kind of Disneyland's version of a garbage plate, except it's all ice cream. And... To be clear, Nancy and I were sharing that, uh, that kitchen sink. We missed the weather in California, mostly. We also missed, uh, picture number three, we also missed uh, going to Los Angeles Angels baseball games. Uh, Disneyland was about 15, 10 or 15 minutes away. Angel Stadium was about 15 or 20 minutes away, so we were able to go there a lot. It was easy to get tickets because there weren't very many people there. <coughs> And we really miss Lowry's. What's a Lowry's? Lowry's is the best prime rib restaurant on, in the universe. Picture number four. Okay, I don't know how easily you can tell this, but what they do when you, when you, it's time for you to eat, they bring this cart over with all these stacks of, of prime rib meat on it. And you tell that chef dude there, Uh, what kind of cut you want, and he just slices it right there in front of you and puts it on your plate. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) And then uh, picture number five. That's me. (laughs) Having some Lowry's prime rib, and full disclosure here, I was not sharing that plate with Nancy. (laughs) But most of all, we miss our brothers and sisters from our uh, former church. Picture number six there. Those are some of them. Uh, yeah, we miss them a lot. We physically left our church in California, but we have always been of them. We have always been and still belong to them. But now we also belong to you. And we are of you. I will say that uh, as I was looking at that picture, uh, You guys really are are much better looking than than they are, (laughs) most of you. John says if they had belonged to us, they would have continued with us. The word translated continue is the same Greek word Jesus used in the Gospel of John in chapter 15. And John uses it later in our passage. Translated there is abide or remain. Jesus said, remain in me, and I will remain in you. If those who left were part of us, John says, they would have stayed with us. And John also calls these Antichrist liars. 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, whoever confesses the Son as the Father also. So John identifies what marks those who left, these antichrists. He calls them liars, and their lie is that Jesus is not the Christ. By what John said in his letter up to now, we can infer that these antichrists claim fellowship with God. They claim to have committed no sin. They claim that they are in the light, but here... They claim that Christ, or what they would say the spirit of the Christ, only came on Jesus at his baptism and left before he died on the cross. To them, Jesus was never God. They are antichrists because they oppose Christ, and as John says, they oppose the Father as well. And let's be clear, these antichrists aren't just mistaken. They haven't gotten some minor doctrine wrong. They know the truth, and they lie about it. Joshua Harris knows the truth, and he lies about it. So John reinforces this point in verse 23. The one who denies the Son does not have the Father. That is, they don't have salvation. They do not have a relationship with the Father that believing in Jesus provides. In contrast, the one who confesses the Son, that is, the one who acknowledges that Jesus Jesus is the Christ, has that saving relationship with the Father. Later, in John, 1 John 4, after calling his readers to test the spirits to determine if they are God, says this in verses 2 and three By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then John talks about you, about us. Not always, or excuse me, always being concerned for his reader. John doesn't just leave the matter there at identifying who these antichrists are. He seeks to encourage and to reassure his readers as they face this situation. And to give them certainty in their living for the Lord. Three times in this passage, John reassures his readers. He introduces each of these three times in kind of a subtle way. You'll see this as, as we get more into it. But the Greek word uh, is simply the word you, but you. But that Greek comes with an emphasis. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says sarcastically to the Corinthians, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. But you are wise in Christ. That's the emphasis. The emphasis is not easily seen in English. Many English versions use the phrase, uh, let you or but you. Others may say something like, nevertheless you, or as for you, or now as for you. However it's translated, we need to understand this phrase with the emphasis intended. And you can understand it thinking of it this way. Even though this may be true, or even though this situation exists, as for you... This is who you are, or this is what you know. John uses this uses this emphasis three times. Verse twenty four and 24, 20 and twenty-four and twenty-seven. The first thing he talks about in this way is anointing, first John two, twenty and twenty-one. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. John says his readers have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, in the Old Testament, the term Holy One is used for God the Father exclusively. In the New Testament, the term is used six times. Five times, it's a clear reference to Jesus Christ. For example, John six sixty-eight and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The sixth time Holy One is used in the New Testament is here in our passage in verse 20. It's Jesus who's the one who provides the anointing. As to what we're anointed with, there's little doubt that it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said that we would receive the Holy Spirit. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit would show us the truth. John 16:13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So what this anointing provides according to John is that you all have knowledge. Now, John's not a southerner. He's not saying you all. He's saying you all have knowledge. <laughs> We can understand this phrase as in opposition to the Antichrist, who claim to have knowledge about Christ but lie about him. Rather, we have the knowledge of the truth about who Jesus Christ is, and we receive that at our anointing. And this is the very point John makes in verse 21. We who are believers and have been anointed by Christ with the Holy Spirit know that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. While it may be distressing to hear someone, especially someone who used to be a part of our fellowship, say that Christ was not who he said he is and that the scriptures are, not, are, are wrong about who they say he, Jesus is, we still know the truth about Jesus Christ. And then John talks about abiding. 1 John 2, 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John calls his readers to remain or to abide in what they had heard from the beginning. And of course, the beginning here is when they first responded to the gospel. And in the context of this passage, John is encouraging his readers to remain in what they heard and what they know about Christ from the time they believed. And I expect John was thinking about the first chapter of his gospel. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus, the Word, was not only with God, he was God. He is God. He did what only God could do in creating all things. And he's also the source of life, that is eternal life. And he is the one who brought light and darkness, brought light to the darkness of people's mind. He is God, but there's more in verse 14 of that same chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The same Word who was with God and who is God, and who created all things and brought light in eternal life, became flesh. That is, he became human. He became as we are. And he lived among us, showing God's glory. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. So this is who Jesus is. But John goes beyond making a theological statement. He says we must abide or remain in this truth. The Greek word for remain is meno. We have already noted that it's the same word Jesus used in John 15 when he said that we must abide or remain in him. There, as here, the word is an active verb, suggesting that to abide is an ongoing active condition. To remain in the truth about Christ is not a passive thing, In fact, John makes it a command. John says that his readers and us must take action to further that abiding, to ever solidify the truth about Christ in our hearts and minds. Now, what does abiding include? Well, it includes several things. It includes one of our favorite phrases here at Grace Life. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Remind yourself about the gospel. Remind yourself about what Jesus Christ did for you. It includes continually being in the scriptures and learning about Christ. It includes doing the things that keep you in close relationship with the Father and with the Son. John MacArthur said, Let the gospel that cannot change remain, and do not follow false teachers. Christian truth is fixed and unalterable. If we stay faithful to the truth, we continue to experience intimate communion with God and Christ and persevere to the fullness of eternal life. Verse 25 John backs up his point by reminding that it is Jesus who promised eternal life for those who abide. The assurance of eternal life is in those who abide. Ironically, the consequence of not abiding isn't that someone loses their salvation. The consequence of not abiding is confusion, fear, distress, and a lack of assurance. John writes to reassure his readers. And then the third time John uses that you with emphasis word is he talks about anointing and abiding. First John 2.27 <clears throat> But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need of anyone that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and it is true and it is no lie just as it is taught you, abide in him. John repeats himself often in this letter. As he does here, but he adds something to what he said before about anointing and abiding. The anointing he talked about earlier, he says here, abides in us. So it's not just a matter of us abiding in the Lord. His anointing abides in us. It stays with us. It remains with us. The Holy Spirit stays in us. Letting the truth abide in you is not something that a believer must do to retain their position or to retain their salvation. Abiding in the truth is a practice of the believer. It is what the believer seeks to do. John encourages his readers to stick with the truth about Christ. And the way to do that is to abide in the truth they first received. When John says they have no need for anyone to teach them, he's referring to the Antichrist. They were trying to teach their lies about the person of Christ. John's readers do not need that so-called teaching because they know the truth, and it abides in them. And not only does the anointing teach about Christ, it teaches us about everything that is everything about the gospel. And this is not to say that we shouldn't uh, sit under godly biblical teaching. We certainly should. The Holy Spirit will use that teaching to reinforce and expand on the truth we know. And John reinforces the truth of what the anointing teaches and reminds the believer that the anointing has taught them not only the truth about the gospel, but it also has taught them to abide in Christ. Jesus, through John and Revelation, wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea, which was having difficulty in following Christ. A lot of difficulty. In that letter, Christ calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, Blind and naked. Yikes! The remedy Jesus gives to that church is twofold. First thing He says is repent. Second thing He says is to respond to an invitation to have a meal. Revelation three twenty. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's what abiding looks like that's what abiding is so we have two very important tools for our life in Christ we have the word and we have the anointing of the holy spirit john stott says this here then are two safeguards the two safeguards against error the the apostolic word and the anointing spirit both are received at conversion the word is an objective safeguard while the anointing of the spirit Is a subjective experience, but both the apostolic teaching and the heavenly teacher are necessary for continuance in the truth, and both are to be personally and inwardly grasped. The only safeguard against lies is to have remaining within us both the word that we heard from the beginning and the anointing that we received from him. It is by these old possessions, not new teachings or new teachers, that we shall remain in the truth. We have the word which is given to us in Christ, and we have been given the anointing of the Spirit. They have both been given, and they will not be taken away. Now, we can ignore them. We can give ear to so-called new teachings, and we can ignore the prompting of the Spirit. If we do, that will be to our detriment. A few things to consider. First, that there are those who claim, in this world, there are those who claim to have been believers or claim to be believers who want to convince you that Jesus is not who the Scripture says says he is. They often sound good, and they are smart, and they might even pull at your emotions. Joshua Harris is very smart, certainly smarter than me. But no matter. If they deny that Jesus is the Christ, Turn away from them. To use a uh, old vernacular, speak to the hand. They don't care for you. They don't want to deceive you. Now, let me say here that I'm not suggesting that you be rude or antagonistic. But I do say that if they start telling lies about Christ, that's the time you need to stop listening and then start telling them about Christ because they need to know. Secondly, learn about Jesus. We have something John's readers don't, didn't have very much of. We have this. We have the Word of God. Sometimes it's uh, bounded in leather. Sometimes it's imitation leather, like this one. Sometimes it's on your phone. But we have the Word of God, all of it. And in it is everything we need to know about who God is and about who Jesus Christ is and about how God wants us to follow him. We have that. The apostolic teaching John talked about is in the Word. It is there that the Holy, the anointing of the Holy Spirit can guide you in understanding Jesus and understanding what He calls you and I to do. Thirdly, call on the Holy Spirit to fill you every day, every hour, if necessary. How do you do that? You ask, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Sometimes you need the filling because you're going into a hard situation. Sometimes you need the filling because you know you're going to speak to somebody about Christ. Sometimes you need the filling of the Holy Spirit just to stay close. Just ask. And then be with one another. I'm glad you're here. Sunday services are important. They're good. They're necessary. It's the time when we gather as a church to hear the word and to worship together. But Sundays aren't enough. Get in a group, as Jesse said earlier. Get in a group, a grace group, a D group, rooted or women's ministry or in man cave, other groups. Get together one-on-one with other believers. Get in places and times where other believers gather to study and to pray and to worship. And finally, let me repeat for you some very wise advice I heard from a fellow named Paul. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully, then, at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, believers, as you know, are under assault. And believers have been under assault well, really ever since the beginning. Because there are people in the world who want to convince us that Jesus is not who he is. I pray, Father, that you would give us the resolve to when we hear such things to say no that's not true that's a lie and then to respond with the truth this is who jesus is jesus is fully human jesus is fully god and he gave his life for me and he rose from the dead. so the power of that life might fill me as well and raise me from the dead thank you lord for loving us Thank you for being in us. Thank you for giving us the anointing. And thank you for giving us your word so that we may persevere in you. Change us, Father, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.